Welcome to The How of Business with your host, Henry Lopez, the podcast that helps you start, run, and grow your small business. And now, here is your host. Welcome to this episode of The How of Business. My guest today is Peter Mann. Peter, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks, Henry. Excited to be here. Now, looking forward to this conversation. We're going to explore everything from, from Peter serving in the military to his later in life autism diagnosis, and then sharing his inspiring entrepreneurial journey through all of that, including founding and growing his latest venture, Oranzi. Oranzi is a maker of the best HEPA air purifiers. If you want to receive more information about the Howa business, including the show notes page for this episode, and how you can continue supporting my show and receive exclusive content and discounts through a Patreon membership, just visit thehowabusiness.com. I also encourage you to please subscribe to my show so you don't miss any episodes. So Peter Mann is the CEO and founder of Virginia-based Oranzi, a leading air purification company known for its efficient, intuitive, and reliable products for consumers, schools, organizations, and businesses. He also is the chair of the Association of Home Appliance Manufacturers Air Cleaner Council. And in 2021, Aranzi merged with, uh, how do you pronounce that? Oh, Ivy Moore. Ivy Moore, thank you. Ivy Moore Manufacturing. Um, I knew Ivy Moore Technologies, rather, and is now a motor technology company with a clean energy mission. Ranzi's new manufacturing facility in Radford, Virginia, is making products in the USA with advanced motor technologies. Previously, Peter was the founder and CEO of the uh, Austin, Texas-based Allen Corp, an air purification company he built. And after seven years, he had a successful exit from that business. He went to college on a Navy ROTC scholarship and then served four years, including a tour in the Red Sea during the first Gulf War. He was a communications officer and then a gunnery officer on the USS McCandless. Peter is late diagnosed autistic and now advocates for autism awareness in the workplace. Peter lives in Blacksburg, Virginia. And so once again, Peter Mann, welcome to the show, sir. Yeah, thanks, Henry. So much to unpack there. You've done so much. You've experienced so many things, so many different twists and turns in your career. And so that's why it's so inspiring to chat about this. And I was excited to have you on the show. Uh, I, th I think I'll just start with uh, what I usually ask people who do go into the military. Why did you decide to go and serve in the military? Yeah, so... Um... You know, when I was in high school, I, I mean, I did okay in school, but I wasn't like a, a star student and I really didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, and my next door neighbor happened to be a retired uh, brigadier general from the mm. Air Force. And my grandfather was, I, I never met him, but he was in the Navy. And so I had, you know, that kind of influence um, and, I, you know, and I, and I wanted to go to a good college, but I didn't want to take on debt. And so, you know, I, I looked into the ROTC scholarships and, and got one. Um, and so, you know, it was kind of a way to go to school without really knowing what I wanted to do, but having a job afterwards and and going to a nice school without incurring, you know, any kind of debt. Um, you know, that, that was kind of the driving force. I didn't know a, a lot about what I was getting into. Um, 
but you know traveling the world was kind of um you know an interest of of mine so you know it all kind of just lined up and um you know at at that point in time it it made sense um, yeah. you know to go that way what did you end up studying uh, uh statistics really more of a math i started in math and it got real theoretical in the higher levels and so i wanted something a little that I, it was more, you know, you could apply. It was more practical, at least, um, you know, in places right, I could see I could use it. And so I shifted to statistics. Got it. So then you served for four years and then after the military, tell us about that career after the military. Yeah. So I got out in the early nineties and, um, you know, it's pre nine 11. And so the, it, it was, you know, it's kind of funny The if you served in the military and you got out in the nineties, nobody cared. Um, <laughs> Interesting. It was, it's, it's really changed since nine 11. It's like, now it's like you get on a plane. It's like, if there's a military person, right. like that didn't happen in the nineties. Um, it, it was, you know, and when I got out, it was like, well, what's your job experience? And, you know, you know, and, you know, maybe it was a part of my inability to communicate it, but it was also just, um, you know, it was almost like I was starting from zero from like with a college degree when I got out and looking for a job. So it took me you know, four or five months to find a job. And I, you know, I took almost a 50 percent pay cut just to get wow. a job. Wow. Yeah. And so, so, so back then, I mean, nobody really gave a lot of value to your work experience in the military. It was just dismissed, I guess. Exactly. Yeah. They're like, well, how does that relate to, um, you know, working at this company and it's, you know, working at a tech company and it was, you know, it just didn't translate. Um, it was kind of like, you know, kind of like the last four years in terms of yeah, yeah. like when I started off, but, you know, in the end, I think it, it, it was good. And, you know, I learned a lot about uh, managing people and working with different types of people and, um, you know, I think that was really helpful in my career, but it, it really didn't come into play until a little bit later. Mm -hmm. So um, just to stay on that point for a moment, uh, as you, I'm sure, have hired and hire ex-military, what, what, what are a lot of employers missing about what you are able to bring forward from that experience, uh, at least at a high level, that we should consider as employers? Yeah, I mean, I think it depends on the the position. A lot of people go into like operations roles, the very mm -hmm. process oriented, very rules follower <laughs> kind of people. Mm -hmm. um, and um, you know, there's 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 lots of jobs to be done for that skill set, and so um, you know, it and it's also managing people. Um, it you know in the navy it's like you don't choose who who's on your team it's right. just <laughs> it is what it is it's not like you, they go through a hiring process it's um you have the people that you, you know you have and you have to find ways of making the team functional and so if you're you know any kind of supervisor or manager those are really good skills that you get at a young age just you know i i graduated from college i was 21 and then I was, you know, managing people, most of who were older than me. And, was, yeah. you know, having to deal with some resentment from people that are in their 30s or 40s, having some 21, 22 year old kid, you know, um, trying to manage them and figure it out. And, and you know, and, and, you know, it's also the, you know, ability to figure things out is, um, 
I think really important in the, in the workplace. Yeah, that, that's such a great point, uh, Peter, because uh, we have talked about this before. You, like you said, you're given a group of people. You didn't get to choose them. Often you don't get to fire them either. So you have to learn how to get the most out of these individuals and make them work as a group. Uh, and it is what it is. You don't, you don't get to switch them out necessarily. Yeah, you can't, and, and they can't quit either. It's like, right. it's, it's like <laughs> you're, you're like, you're, you know, it's like a, a marriage and you're kind of all connected and relying on each other. And it's, you know, it's, it's figuring out how to work with um, different types of people. Yeah. And so for me, that was really interesting. And and I did really well there because I, you know, would listen and, and try and solve problems and, you know, value everyone's opinion, which, you know, wasn't necessarily the case for all the, you know, other officers. Right. When does the desire to to start your own business, when, when does that come about? Yeah. So, you know, I worked for two Fortune 100 tech companies, Tech Data and Dell. And during, you know, the 90s and the early 2000s, the computer industry was a really fun place to be. It was a lot of growth. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, you know, those were really large, fairly bureaucratic organizations when you're that size. And so I, I always had this desire for autonomy and doing something, but I, I never take I had never taken a business class and I didn't have the confidence, um, I think, to step out and, and do something on my own. And that was really the you know early days of the internet. Um, and so, you know, previous to that, you know, if you, you know, worked in the 80s or earlier in the 90s, you just worked for a bigger company. There mm-hmm. there wasn't as many entrepreneurial opportunities as exist today or, you know, in the last 15, 20 years. Um, and so, you know, I just had this drive for, you know, autonomy and getting away from some of these big, big companies, but I didn't know what to do or how to do it. Um and that kind of held me back. It was just, you know, it was like, well, I have this salary. It's like a security blanket. And if I leave, am I going to really be able to stand on my own and, and make it work? So why did you take this leap? What, what was it? Was there something that happened or was it just what, what leads you to finally take this step? And I think it was in this e-commerce space with the air conditioners and air cleaners, correct? Yeah. So I was working at Dell. Um, and I was in a marketing role and kind of managed pricing strategy. I did some, um, led some development for Dell.com functionality on the, you know, government side. And um, this was during the dot-com bubble burst. That was the push (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) because we were every two, three weeks, we were doing another round of layoffs. And while I didn't see my job at at being at risk, it was just the the process of going through and laying off people and having terrible morale. It was like, this, this isn't fun. Um, and I'd met, um, this guy in Austin and, and we, you know, co-founded an e-commerce business. And so I I would work at Dell from eight to five and then from seven to 11 PM, I would work on this e-commerce business at night, um, and did that for, I don't know, six, seven months, um, until it, it had legs and I could, you know, I could see that, that this could be something, um, and, and then left Dell to go and, and do that full time. Wow. Wow. Now, the the fact that it was in the, the, you know, air purification, air cleaning, was that purposeful or was that just happened to be 
what uh, your friend was into or tell me about that. Was that, was there a mission there from the beginning that that was of interest to you? Yeah. So, well, the, there was like two parts to the business. One is we were creating e-commerce sites selling niche categories. And so we sold tankless water heaters, I portable see. air conditioners, air purifiers was one of five, five or six categories that we sold. Um, and, and I, you know, had developed an interest in air purifiers because my son, when he was an infant, really struggled with asthma. I see. Um, and that really left a mark um, in, you know, him struggling to breathe. Um, and so, you know, the, you know, when we had that business, we, you know, started off reselling other people's products because it doesn't require cash up front to, right. um, you know, you set up a website. We knew how to set up websites, you know, because I was at Dell and and the guy I was working, my business partner um, had a, you know, his own e-commerce business selling a, a different kind of product. And so, um, you know, those were the early days of the internet when it was five cents a click on Google. And, <laughs> and, you know, I came from Dell where we were competing with HP and then I moved into, you know, tankless water heaters and air pure and competing against mom and pop shops. Right. <laughs> so it was like the timing was, 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 you know, pretty lucky. I felt pretty lucky um, in, in that environment. And so, you know, we kind of built it out and then, you know, a couple of years in kind of created this Allen brand, which, you know, I started, um, which was to really um, brand products that were, you know, they were made overseas and we were just putting our name on them and, re- okay. and reselling them to have higher margins. Hmm. Interesting. And so how long did that business last? How long did you run that business? Yeah, that was from about 2002 or 2003 into 2009. Okay. And then I I sold my my part of the business um, and then used the cash to start Aronsi. Why and did I, you decide to sell out of that business? If you can share there. Yeah, you know the you know <laughs> when you you know when you have a fifty fifty business relationship and in many ways it's like a marriage, um, you know. And I've talked to the the business attorneys and they're like it, it's pretty common when you have a fifty fifty business to eventually have a difference of opinion down the road as to where you want to put, you know, you get to a point where like an investment for you is a cost to someone else. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You You have different visions for where you want this to go. And, um, you know, I got, you know, life's too short to, you know, be at your own business and not like it. And so I, you know, decided just to sell my part and, and start from scratch and build what I wanted to build. Yeah, no, thanks for sharing that. I know that's a, it's a touchy subject, but I, we talk about that all the time on this show. And I'm very much typically against 50-50 partnerships because of all the problems that can arise from them. Mm-hmm. But partnerships in general, partnerships in general are a challenge. I prefer to work in partnerships, but you have to go into it um, with a lot of clear understanding. But thanks for sharing that. Okay, uh, around so when is it that you get the later in life diagnosis of autism? Yeah, that was during COVID. That was just recently. No, Interesting. I mean, so like, even more. This is after you've already started Aransi. Yeah, I was in my fifties. Wow. <laughs> you know the um, 
Yeah. So my wife was watching, um, I guess CBS morning show was profiling a woman that is autistic and she was describing her traits and she's like, you need to see this. <laughs> and so I watched it and she talked about hyper-focus pattern seeking, you know, seeing details other people miss, you know, kind of math type stuff. And I was like, Oh, that's me. <laughs> so mm-hmm. You know, I went online and took a number of screening um, assessments and, you know, the probably the best one they have is it's kind of interesting. It's it's done by this guy, Simon Baron Cohen. He's a Cambridge uh, professor, does a lot of research into autism. He's, you know, related to Sasha Baron Cohen. Is he really? <laughs> yeah. I don't I know. Would, seriously, that's hilarious. Yeah. It's like, wow. You, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's kind of crazy, but he has a 50 question uh, test and, you know, it, it's it's kind of asking you, um, it doesn't take long to take, but, you know, a, a typical person scores, I don't know, 16 to 18 out of 50 and autistic people tend to score above 30. And I I, I, the first one I scored a 43, <laughs> I took a number of other ones <laughs> and I was like, every single one was like, yeah it's you're you're in that range and um and then you know i set off on a quest to i didn't i kind of didn't want to be a poser and just you know i I didn't know a lot about it at that time um you know now i recognize that if you you know identify as autistic and you know if you do a screening test and it shows that you are you really don't need a formal diagnosis um to be considered autistic it's, it's not it's not it's there's so much stigma it's not like people are dying to be in, right in this group i mean david byrne from the talking heads i don't think he's been formally diagnosed but he says he's autistic and he's looked at the criteria and he goes yep 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 that's me mm-hmm. and so you know but then i i did go off and and get a formal diagnosis but even that wasn't easy um it's you know what i found is it's really set up for children Uh, Yeah, you know, a lot of the centers don't do adults. And um, I did find one that's, I think, affiliated with Virginia Tech nearby. But, you know, I would have had to wait a year and a half um, to see anybody. And so I ended up just finding a woman that does it via telehealth. And, you know, over some period of months, we went through the you know, went through the process and and received the official diagnosis, which is kind of everything. <laughs> and that when does. that happens, uh, were 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 you scared, shocked, uh, relieved? A combination of everything. What was going through your head at that point? I can only imagine. Yeah, it was it was it was a lot. Like she said, well, "What are you thinking?" And I, that's what I said. It's like it's a lot to process. It was a little bit overwhelming. But it was what I expected. You know, I was to the point where, like, how am I not autistic? They're <laughs> taking all these. Mm-hmm. I took 10 screening tests and, and every single one, you know, it was very high score. And you had spent your whole life using those superpowers. Now it's this, I don't know, disease or diagnosis, this bad thing, perhaps. Is that is that fair or what? Yeah, was I didn't going? really see it that way. Good. Um, I decided it, it's just a difference. It's kind of, difference, I kind of yeah. see it as like being left-handed or right-handed. It's just your brain works in a different way. I don't Very think compelling. it's, yeah, I think, you know, it's been stigmatized to where you're kind of taught to be like you're defective or exactly. deficient in some way. And I don't think that's the case at all. Yeah. Um, and I don't mean to minimize everyone who's autistic has struggles and I, in it, 
in my opinion, it's in large part just due to the environment and and societal norms the way they are and inflexibility. You know, we're we're kind of viewed as the inflexible people, but I think a lot of the disability that's autism is the is the inflexibility of society to expand the scope of what's considered normal um, or normal behavior. And um, you know, I think so much could be done to help autistic people if um, you know, if there is more awareness and understanding, you know, autism is just a different way of thinking, perceiving, and socializing. Um, and then on top of it, there can be co-occurring conditions that affect cognition or speech, ADHD, uh, a number of other things. But, you know, just autism in and of itself is really, you know, it's it's around the routines and the sensory sensitivities and, you know, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm assuming that now in your work environment, you, and because you're in control to some degree as, as, as the owner, you've created a routine, a process, an environment that allows you to leverage those hyper-focused abilities as superpowers for yourself and then the work that you do. Is that fair? Yeah. And I think that's part of the drive for autonomy so much is I think that's an autistic uh, characteristic. It's like, you know, having the the need to do that and to more or less set my schedule. Um, you know, a lot of, you know, what what triggers a lot of autistic people is, you know, lack of routine and being able to control my calendar and control my day and um put structure around it is is, you know, allows me to be my best self. Um, but you know, when I you know, I only speak for myself. I know, um, you know, when you look at autistic people as a community, there's just a wide range, you know, they call it a spectrum, but it's a spectrum on multiple axes. Mm. Um, and what someone could struggle with, someone else may not. Um, and, and it could be to a, a different extent or different degree. And so, um, but, you know, you know, I started to, you know, learn a lot about it and, you know, talk to other autistic people. And then I really became, you know, kind of, I need to step up and start talking about this uh, because the unemployment rate is most autistic people are unemployed and that that should not be the case. No. I mean, most autistic people have average to above average intelligence. That's yeah. That's what I are unemployed. You know, the, Mm. And it's also, you know, with my late diagnosis, I think if you're an adult, most people are late diagnosed because, you know, I was in elementary school in the seventies. And at that time, one in 2,500 were, were diagnosed as being autistic. And then just a couple of weeks ago, CDC came out with one in 36. And it's not like there's more autistic people out there. It's just, we weren't, we were never diagnosed. No. And so, um, you know, and there's probably millions of autistic adults running around not realizing they're autistic. This is Henry Lopez briefly pausing this episode to invite you to join me for one of my next live online workshops. During these interactive workshops, I cover a specific topic that will help you with starting and growing your small business. Just visit thehowofbusiness.com to learn more and to register. If you need help creating an effective business plan, for example, to start your first small business, then my next business plan workshop may be just what you need. Or perhaps you need help completing your financial projections for your new business. Well, I have a workshop for that too. 
And if you're already operating your business, then you can probably benefit from learning how to better manage the cash in your business by attending my cash flow management online workshop. These are just a few of the workshops that I currently offer, and I keep these workshops to a small number of participants so that we have the time to answer all of your questions. Whether it's getting started with your first business or growing and exiting your existing small business, I can help you get there with one of my online workshops. To find out more and to register for a live online workshop, please visit thehowofbusiness.com. Take that next step today towards finally realizing your business ownership dreams. I look forward to having you join me for my next workshop. You know, sometimes we face the challenge of the perception of our team of how accessible we are and how uh, how uh, willing we are. You know, the open door policy and, and being accessible. Has that posed a challenge? And, and more curious, how have you managed that so that people still feel like you get your autonomy, but you still are accessible to them as their leader. Yeah. I mean, we have, you know, we have a factory here in Virginia um, and really just getting it off the ground. Um, and then we've got, I don't know, 10 or 15 people that work remotely across the country. And so it's, we have a bit of a hybrid uh, work environment. And so we use Slack to communicate and anyone reaches out to anyone else. Um you know, I get questions all the time and that I just answer directly or, um, in it, you know, I try and set up, um, zoom meetings for those folks to, you know, ask questions and just to be, you know, um, transparent and open in, with communication. And so I, you know, I think we've, uh, got a pretty good culture where, you know, everyone's feels confident, um, to speak up and, um, you know, talk about whatever's, whatever's going on. And, you know, and for me, I just want things to be better and, um, and to work well. Um, Cause I know we, you know, we're in a competitive environment and, you know, I need everyone to be their best. And so, you know, <laughs> there's no point in having like any issues festering or, um, and so that's kind of the mindset. And mm -hmm. so, you know, my calendar, you know, we all, um, can see each other's calendars and book appointments and, um, you know, I have regular, you know, weekly meetings with different groups. And so I think, you know, communication is really important and, you know, just being open to, you know, talk to people and, and be a human being is, <laughs> is, is, yeah, I, I don't know like how, how else to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. Uh, so why did you decide to stay in this space in the air purifier space? Yeah. So, you know, when I left the other business, they, you know, had, a number of different categories. And I really wanted to focus on indoor air quality and just create a brand around that. And so that's, you know, and I, and I saw an opportunity um, to do that. And that that's what I did. Um, you know, I wasn't sure the previous business that was part of the conflict I had with my, you know, business partner was, you know, he was looking at other categories and wanting to um, you know, at in the early 2000s, it was interesting. There was, you know, um, you know, other companies creating multiple websites, and one of them turned into Wayfair, and we were watching those guys. Hmm. And he wanted to build uh, more of that type of a model, and I wanted I to build more of a brand um, around air quality. And those are very different, like uh, visions. Very different, <laughs> you yeah. would say. Yeah. And yeah. so, you know, I you know, I ended up just, you know, obviously leaving, um, to start this and, and do what I wanted to do. 
Did you, so obviously I understand the backstory with your challenges your son had. And so you, you began to learn and understand the value of air quality and the issues that we have with it. But did you also feel like there was a gap in the market to do it well? Yeah. And there was a gap that was created because I don't know if you remember in the nineties, there was all the sharper image stores and catalogs and infomercials and they had an air purifier, which was, I believe, the top seller in the marketplace. I see. And, and people loved it because it got rid of odors and, you know, I thought it was just amazing. And then Consumer Reports came out, I don't know, 2003, 2000, I can't remember when, uh, early, maybe 2003 to 2005 and gave it three black circles and said, do not buy. Really? Essentially. And it, it resulted in a big lawsuit. And Sharper Image lost because Consumer Reports had a test methodology and showed how they tested. And um, the reason why the product did so well with odors is because it was emitting ozone. (laughs) And then the California Air Resources Board, which is kind of part of the California EPA, came up with regulations um, around ozone limits for air purifiers. And so I think, you know, I, I, I assume there's a connection there. Right. Um, because, you know, ozone is great for getting rid of odors, except it's a lung irritant and it's considered indoor air pollution. And so it's like, you know, wow. to me, it's like, you know, if I had an, you know, if with an asthmatic son, it's like ozone is not good. Hmm. Um, and so I wanted to, you know, so that they created this, this market and then they just disappeared. And so I was like, there's a, there's an opening here yeah. to, to do a product and do it right. How long did it take you to, well, you had already been making air purifiers at Allen or reselling others, right? So you knew a little bit about the space, but this was the first time that you were manufacturing your own or what am I missing there? Yeah. So, you know, previously we were just branding products that factories in China were making. And so I went to, you know, Hong Kong and China and visited with factories and, you know, and I kind of started off that way in terms of they've already built the product and I'm just getting it. And, you know, they have these products available and then it's just a matter of placing orders um, and putting your name on it. And that Mm -hmm. was kind of, kind of how it got started. And, you know, and then in um, I'd say 2013, uh, connected with a factory in Connecticut that, you know, makes electric motors and, and worked with them to develop some air purifiers that we, you know, from designed ourselves and were made at that factory and, and, you know, did pretty well with those. Um, And, you know, since then have been, you know, doing our own designs, um, you know, and doing all the marketing and selling and shipping direct is just, We've never done the actual manufacturing part. Um, and what happened in COVID is the market just kind of blew up since there was, yeah, there was more demand than supply of air purifiers. Mm-hmm. And, it, you know, and, and it just, the sales really took off. And um, I had a colleague that, you know, had an electric motor company. He built it up, retired came up with this new idea for a you know new way to make um, high-end electric motors. I invested in that business. Um, and then we ended up merging um, in 2021. And you know now we're in the process of reshoring our manufacturing and building new products with you know our, our electric motor technology. 
Amazing. And and your model right now is strictly direct to consumer e-commerce on your website. Is that correct? Or am I missing something yep. there? Yeah. I mean, the, there's also a B2B element with schools buying, but it, that's really tapered off. It, it kind of spiked in 2020 and sure. 2021, but <laughs> the, those they, they kind of seem to have moved on to buying other things or <laughs> I kind of laugh. It's like they, they'd rather put money in a football stadium than oh yeah, <laughs> in <indoor> air quality. <laughs> no doubt. But but, um, um, but yeah, it is. And, and so the idea is we're 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 starting to reshore this summer, and so essentially we're going to be taking you know parts and components and making the motor, making the machine, and then shipping it direct to the end user, which is you know consumer. So really taking all the steps out of the the process yeah and so that's the way you see yourself for, for, for the foreseeable future you don't see yourself getting shelf space on a retailer's uh location you'll stick to direct to consumer and, and why is that why do you prefer that model at this point peter yeah i mean it's control um i mean it depends on the terms um uh, you know i think when we're when we're selling direct to the customer and shipping direct to them, it's the most efficient way to do it. We can keep our prices low. Our, our focus is on, you know, higher performance, lower price. Um, you know, even higher performance, lower price than the Chinese imports. And so we need to be efficient in how we do things. Um, it, you know, it, it could be that we have the product in retail stores, but it really comes down to terms. You know, I've just hear horror stories about, um, you know the the payment terms, how much inventory you have to send them, mm-hmm. how much margin, what their margin requirements are. And it, you know, in it, you know, I think we're definitely open to it. It just has to make financial sense. Yeah, um, I mean, the, the big boxes demand so much that it's, it's really a completely different business model, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, Amazon and Walmart e-commerce, you know, they charge 15%. But, you know, if a big box wants 50%, that's a different story. <laughs> right. Want, you know, they want to pay you net 90 and um, it's, it, it really just comes down to the economics of it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. During COVID, as you mentioned, the demand went through the roof. So many companies that were making products that were in high demand got caught in that, you know, what do we do now? Do we ramp up manufacturing for what we know will be a blip here? Uh, how do we manage this? How, how did you manage that? And what were you thinking as you were going through that uh, disproportionate demand for your product? Yeah, I mean, we didn't really find um, supply chain issues being so much of an issue. The The challenge with us, um, which was an issue for everyone, was getting access to the ocean containers <laughs> and shipping them across because yeah. the space was so tight. There, right. There's so much stuff being shipped. And then the costs, you know, what used to cost 3000 3500 was well over 20000 mm-hmm. per container. And mm-hmm. it just, that adds up. Um, and so um, that was kind of what we were, you know, we were battling. And then, um you know, one way that we managed it is we really dropped our advertising because it's like, there's no point in advertising for stuff that you're not going to have. And then um, it was really difficult to manage with schools because schools could come in and buy a few thousand units that if you didn't, you know, have excess inventory, you know, you didn't have enough to fill it or it would clean you out. And then you'd have to, you'd be out of stock for 
a month or two. And so, you know, we kind of went through that where it was really difficult to forecast what the sales were going to be. Um, mm-hmm. Meanwhile, there's all these new competitors entering the marketplace. Um, and and so it was, it was pretty wild time, um, but we kind of managed the inventory pretty tight um, to not get, not get too heavy and but you know try and balance that with um um you know having enough to sell but not having so much that it you just have a ton <laughs> ton yeah. of product that if the sales drop off you're stuck with all this just glut of inventory mm-hmm. i'm curious where does the name Ramsey come from yeah so it it means orange in finnish my grandmother grew up in um, finland and was you know influential in my life and um you know orange is the color of rejuvenation and i grew up in syracuse and everything's orange (laughs) that's right (laughs) i love it love it excellent so you know you often i'm sure now is as you're part of what uh, you're doing is being on these podcasts like mine is to share share your knowledge share your experience especially as it relates to your diagnosis, but even beyond that, your success in business. And I'm sure you get often asked, Hey, I have an idea for a product. How do I get started? So when somebody comes with you with that, that question, what, where do you guide people when they say I've got an idea for a product where, where do you tell them to start first? Yeah. I mean, I I think you have to understand the, what, what the market sizes or the potential market size. I think too many people will like, well, this is a billion dollar market. And if I just get 2%, that means it's like the, it doesn't work that way. Um, you have to really understand, you know, who your customer is, um, what your unique selling uh, proposition is, why somebody should buy this, you know, this is solving a problem for anyone. Um, you know, why should someone buy it? And is there a way to test it? You know, um, you know, that's kind of like how I got started is we weren't, I didn't jump to manufacturing thousands of units at a time. I resold other people's stuff to learn the market. Yeah. And then once I understood the market, I, and talked to customers, I knew what they cared about and then just built that. It wasn't like any (laughs) kind of rocket science that went into it, but it's just really understanding the, the marketplace um, and the other thing is the market size, I think, is really important. If you're in too small of a market, you could crush it and still like not do great. Um, and so, you know, and, and I've got some friends that have started businesses and, you know, they, they, they're like really tiny market shares, but they're such big markets that their businesses are are pretty solid. And I think it goes to like, what are your expectations and where do you see yourself or where do you want to be doing? And, and is what you're doing aligned with that? Mm-hmm. Because, you know, not everybody has to have a huge business. Um, That's right. You know, and, and so I, I think it just needs to align with, you know, what do you want to get out of it? Where do you want to be in X years and then work backwards from there? Yeah. That also ties to, I'm sure in part, if you're in partnership, making sure that at least at the start, you're in alignment on what that means. What, what is it that we're looking to build here uh, together? How big of a business is it that we want? In your experience, what, what holds people back? A lot of people have ideas, lots of ideas. I've got an idea. I've got an idea, but what, what do you think in your observation holds people back from actually jumping in and doing it, you know, you mentioned early on, there was confidence was an issue for you as it is for most people. 
What else do you observe do you think holds people back? Yeah, I mean, definitely confidence um, for me. Um, I, I think that's a lot of it. Um, sometimes it's, you know, you need cash <laughs> to, to get something going. You don't have the funds to do it. And so you have yeah. to, to solve for that. I think um, you have to be able to execute and you have to understand all the different pieces um, and and understand your strengths and weaknesses and not be so, uh, I guess, high ego to where you think, you know, everything when, you know, you don't know what you don't know and, um, you know, kind of do your homework and understand what you're getting into or, or talk with other people that have done something similar. I think, you know, surrounding yourself with really good people um, or connecting with people like even on LinkedIn and ask questions and, um, and get educated on, you know, what, what it takes and what you're missing. That's, that's a big part of it. And, and it, it's, as you were saying, that it reminds me back to early lessons that you had to develop in the military to get people to work together, to listen to people, to, to get the most out of individuals that you did have on your team at that point in time. I got to figure that comes into play sometimes as well. Yeah. And I, and I think, you know, we all have our own ex, uh, experience and we view things through our, you know, our lived experience and um, to me, what's always been interesting is, is like, what am I missing or what, what don't I know um, mm -hmm. that I need to know? Um, it's interesting for me when I work, um, you know, with engineers and they're really good at engineering, but they, there's blind spots to like marketing yeah. or marketing people don't understand like what the engineers are doing. And it's kind of like you get so entranced in your, your area of expertise that you, in some cases, discount the value of other parts of, <laughs> of an organization um, with, without fully, um, and I think that's natural that, you know, everyone does that. Mm -hmm. um, but I think you need to kind of, um, you know, kind of step back and, and just kind of take the approach of, I don't know, like, what these guys are doing, <laughs> what they're, you know, um, the, the importance of that. Um, and, and, you know, just kind of, you know, get, get educated on, on the, you know, full, the full, um, all the parts for, you know, what it takes to grow a business. Yeah, absolutely. So Peter, what's next uh, that you can share with us for Ramsey? What's on the horizon? Where are you going next with the business? Yeah. So this summer we're launching our, you know, our first product that we're, you know, making in Virginia. Um, and then probably over the next year, we'll, we'll introduce a couple other air purifiers. And then beyond that, um, I see us moving into some other product categories, although we haven't figured out <laughs> what those are yet, but, you know, theoretically we can make anything with an electric motor mm -hmm. and then ship it direct to the end user. And so, you know, it, I think we're looking at, you know, what industry can we, can we be disruptive in? Um, with our pricing model, because we've figured out how to design products, you know, similar costs um, to what, what they do in China, but make it here. Um, and so I really like our story. Um, you know, 70 to 80% of Americans prefer American made products, but very few people want to pay a premium and we've solved for that. And so you know, we don't know what we want to be when we grow up, but um, we're we're kind of in the process of of reviewing, you know, what that is. Now you've got this uh, long list of loyal fans that are using one of your products. You've sold to them directly, so you own you own that relationship 
a tremendous opportunity to potentially explore complementary products that they might want from you as well. Absolutely. Yeah, we can leverage, I don't know, we've 100,000 customers um, and we can leverage that to, you know, launch new products. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, we're also, you know, doing more on Amazon, which they own the customer, which, you know, it's kind of, I guess, part of the deal. Right. <laughs> but, yeah. But they're just a, a monster of a, a marketplace. And so, um, you know, I think, you know, almost everybody's there. And so, you know, we'll see how that goes. But um, ideally, we sell direct and, you know, um, just you know, ship everything from here. Yeah. All right. Uh, where do we go online to find out more about the business? Yeah, our, our website is aransi.com, O-R-A-N-S-I.com. And um, I'm on LinkedIn, Peter Mann, M-A-N-N. Um, you know, I'm really happy to connect with anyone, um, talk about business or reshoring or autism, <laughs> any, any of that stuff. Sure. Uh, and Peter, I'm always looking for a book recommendation. Is there a book that comes to mind that you would recommend? Yeah, I, I like um, This is Marketing by Seth Godin. Um, it's kind of the approach that we've taken, and that is to build marketing into your product. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I've seen in 20 years of of doing this that, um, you know, you can take an average product, even one that's really low cost, but to sell it, if you have to spend a ton of money in advertising, it's it's never going to uh, make sense. And so it, it makes a lot more sense to build marketing into your product and drive word of mouth and awareness um, because word of mouth is 10 times more effective than any other form of marketing. Um, yeah, agreed. That's one of my favorite marketing books. I think it's, I have it on my shelf. I'm looking at it right now. It's kind of like the summary of all my other marketing books. You know, if you could just read, yeah. just read this one book and you'll be on your path, I think, on marketing. But it's, it's somewhat to an extent to us counterintuitive, right? That's why I think it's a challenge for some people. Because we, yeah. we often might, um, if we don't put enough into or we're reselling a product that really doesn't have the quality that should, that doesn't sell itself, then we have to layer it with more marketing, don't we? Yeah, and the math just doesn't work. You know, mm-hmm. it's, you know, especially with, you know, Amazon, if you have a physical product, they're encouraging Chinese factories to sell direct on their platform. So mm-hmm. how, how are you going to compete with them? Right. <laughs> You're not. You have to, you have to build something that's better or, mm-hmm. or connects with people better or, or something remarkable that they would want to talk about. Yeah. Excellent. All right. Let's uh, ramp it up. Last question for you. What's one thing you want us to take away from this conversation? We've had pretty far-reaching conversation from your journey to the autism diagnosis to building a couple of different companies. What's one thing you want us uh, to remember from this conversation? I mean, for me, like I never would have predicted I am where, you know, I am. If you went back to my childhood or high school or college, it's like, I mean, it makes sense going backwards, but, you know, I, I had really low expectations and, um, you know, I think that was in part to being autistic and not being understood. Um, and, you know, I think it, for anyone, it really helps to have self-awareness and understand your strengths and weaknesses and play to your strengths and don't be, um, beaten down by your weaknesses. Um, because, you know, I think in the 80s and 90s, there was a lot of training on like, well, you need to get good at your weaknesses. <laughs> and and I think now it's uh, fortunately, 
not so much that way. And, you know, and, and I think it's getting clear on your strengths and just doing that. Um, and I think you'll be much better off than um, dwelling on areas that, that don't naturally, you know, that you're not naturally gifted at. And that those areas, I think what's so inspirational here is that those other areas, those superpowers that you do have, where you start to channel them into superpowers, can result in you being a successful entrepreneur or a successful business owner. In other words, the the societally accepted norms of what is normal, what is intelligence, do not necessarily equate to a successful business owner. Uh, and the, re the, the reverse is true. In other words, so many people I talk to say, well, I never thought I would be a business owner because I was never smart enough or I never was good at business or I never was good at math. And so we allow society to kind of put those barriers on us as to what we might or may not be able to do. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And I also, I don't know if you follow Simon Sinek, but he sure. talks a lot about infinite versus finite games. And I think that, you know, school is a finite game where, you know, mm -hmm. it's known rules, you study the test, you take the test, you know, but when you get out into the business world, it's an infinite game. It's like yeah. the rules change, the players change, and you have to be able to figure things out. And it's in some ways, it's the A students that have never struggled, that when they get out into the real world and, and kind of come across, they're playing a different game, and they've never had to persevere, they 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 sometimes don't do as well as right. you know some of the B or C students that, that have you know kind of struggled and have resilience and um you know for me it's like I'm finally playing the game that you know I'm I'm wired for yeah. um, whereas in school that that was not really the case. Mm -hmm. Well said, well said. Tell us again where you want us to go online to learn more about Aransi. Yeah, Aransi.com, O-R-A-N-S-I.com. Um, that's it. Excellent. We'll have a link to that as well on the show notes page. Peter, thanks for joining me and for this great conversation and being transparent with all of this and sharing all of your knowledge and experience. Thanks for being with me today. Yeah, thank you. I enjoyed it. This is Henry Lopez, and thanks for joining me on this episode of The How of Business. My guest today again was Peter Mann. I release new episodes every Monday morning, and you can listen and subscribe to my show anywhere you listen to podcasts including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or at my website, thehowofbusiness.com. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to The How of Business. For more information about our coaching programs, online courses, show notes pages, links, and other resources, please visit thehowofbusiness.com.